Well, there you have it. That's how he gets in and out so quickly in places. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Prep and Land, or that's actually like a, a series, a couple of different shows that ABC put on, but it is, uh, it's, it's pretty fun to watch. But really, if you look at, at the meaning behind that series and what they're, they're playing off of is this idea that Santa needs a little bit of help in order to, uh, to make his night possible. Um, they, they prepare. They prepare for Santa's coming, the big guy. Um, now, God doesn't need our help, and God didn't need the help of John the Baptist, but he chose to use John to help prepare the way of hearts for people to come and know the Messiah. And that's what we're going to take a look at today as we go into our series, Worshiping the King Together, is looking at John and how God sent John to prepare us. So the question I have really for you is, how prepared are you to come on a Sunday morning to worship Jesus Christ? How prepared are you for the bigger guy, the guy that's really important, which is God? Worship the King, that's where we're at. And we've uh, Luke started us off last week with this series And I'm going to pick up and and take the next few as we go through. And then when we hit January, we're going to go into a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So that's a little bit of a direction of where we're going and give you a little update on on how things will proceed from here. Here's a verse that I think uh, really kind of hits home with what we're trying to accomplish with this, this series. An hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, this is Jesus talking, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. And you can look at some other translations, and other translations say, yes, the Father seeks or is looking for people to worship him. He's seeking, he's wanting, he's desiring that we would come to worship God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, with the help of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to take a look at that and why this is so important. There's not very many places you're going to read in Scripture where it says God seeks this, God wants this. But this is one of those. And if you think about Sunday morning and what the purpose is of Sunday morning, hopefully you understand that we're here because we want to celebrate and worship our God together. If you come thinking, well, I'm just going to come to learn. Or if you come thinking, you know, I'm just going to come to experience uh, fellowship with other people. That's a piece of it. That's a part of it. But that's not what we're trying to accomplish. What we want to happen on a Sunday is to celebrate and worship the King. Celebrate and worship our God. That's what we're trying to accomplish, and hopefully that's what you come doing as we get together. Now, a couple things about worship I want to hit on before we get going. One, we worship both individually and corporately. You're going to see this throughout Scripture. You go back in the Old Testament, you see David went and he worshiped God individually, one-on-one. He would write psalms. Those are personal ones, and they were recorded for us to read and hear and worship with as well. But you also see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that we worship God corporately with the masses, with people. And God desires that kind of worship. God wants that kind of worship. And that's what we're going to be talking a little bit in the next few weeks is how we corporately come together, how we as brothers and sisters in Christ come together as a church and worship him. We worship both corporately and individually, and we worship in both word and action. You see that all throughout Scripture as well, right? We have words that we can offer up to God. We see those in Psalms. We see those in various writings throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, different types of prayers, different types of songs. We sing these songs. Those are all verbal ways that we worship God. But we also need to worship God in action. And the Bible talks about that a lot. In action is obedience to him and what he has to say, right? 
I mean, we got to do what God says, and there are several things that God tells us to do when we come to worship. In fact, coming together in Hebrews 10, it says, don't forsake the assembling of each other. We need to come together. That's obedience. When we come together to worship him, we're obeying God. That's an act of worship. God says, set aside the first fruits of your labor. So we do that. In fact, as a church, when we started Involved Church, there was a question. Do we put like a, a box in the back for people to give, or do we make passing the plate, which some people are like, oh, I don't really like passing the plate. And some people are like, no, I like passing the plate because it's an act of worship. So we pass that around and we, we give because we want to set aside the first fruits and obey God in doing that. And out of obedience, we give because that's worship. So we try to provide opportunities for us as a church to corporately worship him together. We worship in both word and action. Uh, Romans 12, 1 is a great passage for that. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Are we prepared for that when we come to worship together? And do we go out then into the world and live as a worship, as a sacrifice, as an offering to God? So, here we are so far. We've talked about worshiping the king from a humble heart. Uh, Luke went into that last week when he talked about Mary and how she was in a humble state and she uh, carried our Lord and then gave birth to our Lord in a very humble way. She worshiped him from a humble heart. And today we're going to move into how we worship the king with proper preparation. I don't know how much thought you've given to this, but do you prepare to come and worship Christ? before you just walk through the doors on a Sunday morning? Do you give much thought to it Saturday night, Sunday morning when you wake up? Or is it just kind of one of those things you do because maybe you grow up, you grew up doing it all your life, and you're like, well, that's what we do on a Sunday morning. We just go to church. Or do you give thought and time and prep into worship? And I'm well convinced that if, if we prepare we'll experience better worship. I think a prepared worshiper experiences better worship. That's the argument I want to make as we go through our story this morning. We'll look at John and how he came as the one to prepare and turn the hearts to God. We see that he was given to us for a specific reason, and that was to help us understand that there's something greater than ourselves. That's Jesus Christ. He came as the one to prepare the way. So a prepared worshiper experiences better worship. Can you think of one thing that wouldn't improve without, with preparation? Can you think of one thing that wouldn't improve with preparation? So I've had a little bit more time to think about this, and I was going through this last week thinking, okay, what are some of the very simple things that I can think of that wouldn't improve? It's really hard to come up with something. Like, for instance, just very simple thing is in the morning um, when I get up, we usually keep our room pretty cold at night because uh, that's where we prefer sleeping. So when I get up, the floor is cold. And I'm always like, man, this is cold on my feet, especially when you go into the bathroom. It's really cold because there's tile on there. Like, oh, it's miserable, right? It's the hard things we have to live with. So I've often thought, wouldn't it be nice if I had a way to warm up my socks? And with a little bit of preparation, I know I could find a way to warm up my socks. In fact, we have a pellet stove in our front room, and it has a screen in front of it so our kids don't burn their hands on it. And if I just went out and put socks on it and draped it over that screen, 
in the morning, I could get up, put on nice, toasty, warm socks. That would be nice, right? But that would take a little bit of preparation. Yet it would improve the situation, for me anyhow. So you see, everything, you could probably go back and think, yeah, everything can improve with just a little bit of preparation. I want to ask this question as well. Since God went out of his way to prepare the way for the coming king, shouldn't we prepare our hearts for worshiping him? That's what I want to look at as we go through this story with John. God went out of his way to prepare the way for the coming king, Jesus Christ. Shouldn't we then prepare our hearts for worshiping him? So prep plan, Luke 1, 5 through 25. We're going to go through a large section today. If you want, you can take out your Bibles and and you can turn to that passage there, Luke chapter 1, 5 through 25, and then 57 through 66. Now I tried, I was thinking through, this is a large passage, and I was like, I just want to read 5 through 25 and make a few comments on it. But if you've been around here, you know, I just can't read a passage and just read it. I have to like make comments as I go through it. So hopefully it'll help understand and clear some things up maybe as we read through and you're like, I don't really know why they said that or so forth. Well, I hope to at least hit on a few things as we go through this so it'll understand it or we can understand it better. Before we do, let's pray. Father, teach us today what a privilege it is to come and see young kids come up here and sing songs before us and, and worship you through those songs. I pray, God, that not only would those words um, rise up to you as worship, but the actions of those kids would rise up to to you as worship. And, Father, as as we pray and as we sing and as we open your word together, may these words rise up to you, but then also may our lives be a sacrifice and worship to you. So guide us today as we move through this text together. Teach us, help us to leave this place knowing you so much more than when we walked in. Help us to leave this place worshiping you throughout this week. Not only verbally, but in our actions as well. We give you all the praise and glory for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah, and his wife was from the daughters of Aaron, And her name was Elizabeth. So we get introduced to two people here, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now both are righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing to say? Wouldn't you love it if the scripture said that about you? These are incredible people. They had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Now the idea of well along in years, he doesn't give us an exact time. He doesn't give us an exact year age, but I think we can kind of assume he's probably over 50 years old, and this is why. In the Old Testament, it said that priests were from the age of 25 to 50. At the time of 50, they would retire. Now, he's actively serving, but oftentimes what you also see is after the age of 50, the priests would come and they would serve but not do a lot of the heavy lifting. It's kind of they moved into another, another period of time. And I think the, the verbiage here, the, the words kind of lead us to believe he's beyond the time of 50, beyond that time where he would be kind of in his prime working time period. Okay? So he's well along in years, well advanced in years. When his division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. And it happened that as he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to burn incense, they would, they would choose kind of like rolling a dice or something like that, like, oh, hey, it's your job today. Go in and burn incense here. 
he went in, verse 10, and the whole assembly of people was praying outside. Verse 11, now an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. He wasn't just terrified, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Okay, there's some emphasis there. Basically, he was scared, he was frightened, he was, you know, how we say, maybe needing to change his pants afterwards. That's kind of what we do today, right? Like, he's so scared. Now, if you're saying, well, why would he be scared of that situation? I mean, he's a priest. Well, think about it this way. Here you are going through your morning. You go to the bathroom. You're brushing your teeth. You're looking down. And all of a sudden, you look up, and there's an angel in the mirror behind you. Would you be scared? Yeah, you bet. He's just going through his regular routine. He's, he's serving. He's burning incense. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And all of a sudden, boom, there's an angel. He's terrified. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Just like the angel said to Mary, and just like we'll see with the shepherds next week, the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, she's going to bear you a son, and you will name him John. I have that highlighted there just so you can kind of remember it, because the rest of the story is going to make sense. Remember that he said specifically, his name is to be John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. Because this is going to be a very public display, or it's going to be on public display. Many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. Now you may say, well, why, did, why is that so significant? We know in Scripture it says, okay, you can have a little bit of wine. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, you can have a little bit of wine for your stomach. The Bible says don't get drunk with wine or beer or those types of things. So why is it that John couldn't have any wine or beer? And so some might even take this and say, well, that's exactly what we need to do. No wine or no beer. And I think, simply put, the idea is that John is supposed to be set apart. John is supposed to be someone that people look to and say, hey, he's walking with the Lord. And we can't ever accuse him of being drunk. We can't ever be accuse him of, of being off his rocker because he's drinking. He is one who is with God. And it's clear that wine or alcohol, none of that has ever touched his lips. We often associate, even today, we'll associate wine and beer with the world. And he says, no, he's going to be separated from that. Separated from that. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Again, many. It's a, it's a public event. This is seen throughout the world. Many will see, many will hear of this guy named John. Then he will go before him in the spirit of power of Elijah. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet who did incredible things, great miracles, helped turn some people back to God. He says he's going to have that kind of spirit, that kind of power. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. There's the idea of a prepared people. That's what John was coming to do. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel. For I am an old man. There he says it again. I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. You're not supposed to say that, guys, right? But here he points that out to the angel. The angel knows anyhow, so why hide it? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. You were just, in fact, let's, let's just rewind a little bit. You were just terrified of me. You were scared of me, and now you're questioning me. 
And that's what he's saying. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen. You'll become silent and unable to speak until these things take place. So basically, I was told this. This is what you're doing. This is what you're going to do now. Right? We've seen that a long way. Or he pulls out the remote control and he says, hey, mute. All right? Gabriel muted John, or muted uh, Zachariah at this point. He said, you're not going to speak anymore. You will become silent and unable to speak until, these, until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. They're starting to ask questions. Why isn't Zechariah coming out? Did something happen while he's in there? He is old, after all, so maybe they were thinking that. It says, when, did he, when he did come out, he could not speak to them. And then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary, and he was making signs to them and remained speechless. Well, something's going on, right? This is, becomes obvious. It's clear. There are many people watching. So when the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. And there's a little bit of a question why. This isn't a common occurrence where a woman would go off for five months and hide. I think what probably is happening, or at least some of the suggestions, is that she probably was facing a lot of questions. I mean, here, you know, Zechariah is, is coming out saying, yeah, we're, we're going to have a child. And people are like, what? But he's not able to speak. And so... People were starting to ask questions. Elizabeth, is this really true? Is this going to happen? And if you were being pestered, you'd probably want to get away for a little while. So why not get away and then come back when it's really clear? Yeah, all right, she's pregnant. Five months later, she comes back. And she said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor on these days to take away my disgrace among the people. She wasn't able to bear a child. That was a big deal. Now she can, and her disgrace is taken away. So she praises God with that. Now a couple of things just to, to think about. We take a little bit of a break before we go into the rest of the passage. As God prepares and sends John, a couple of things to point out. One, God has a prep plan, and that prep plan was public. And if you compare the two, you compare how Jesus was born and you compare it with how John was born, you're going to see something completely opposite. When Jesus was born, he was born of a virgin Mary. And a lot of people would have shunned Mary because they would say, yeah, right, she's not a virgin. Right? That would be the conclusion any of us would have in that situation. Come on, Mary, really? And so she got shunned, she got pushed aside. A lot of people would say, no, that's, that's not the Messiah. She's claiming it's from God. There's no way. And then Jesus was born in a, a stall, in a manger. There's no room for him. He then had to flee and go to Egypt for a while. I mean, everything that, about Jesus points to, he had the shepherds and the wise men, they came and worshipped him, and that was about it. And Mary and Joseph. Everything was kept quiet. But John, he was born to, to the priestly line, the priestly family. And he was talked about there on the mountain, the temple. And people were saying, hey, there's something unusual going on here. And we can see that God's behind this. And people were probably thinking to themselves, maybe this is the Messiah. It became very public and very talked about. Very different than Jesus. God's prep plan was public. God's prep plan then turned hearts that was the point of it. 
Verse 17, remember this? He will go before him, speaking of John, and the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. They had for so long turned away from God and were seeking their own ways of life and pleasure and so forth. He says, no, he's going to start to turn those hearts back to God. So oftentimes at Christmas, we think about the story of Jesus and how awesome and great and wonderful it is. But don't forget there's a story that comes before that. And that's the story of John. And it too has a purpose with the Christmas story. It too has a purpose with salvation and forgiveness of our sins. And that was to prepare the hearts of people. Now, the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. And she had a son. Then her neighbors and relatives, again, very public, heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they rejoiced with her. And when he came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, which was the custom, they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Zechariah and Elizabeth were able to talk about that, and Elizabeth knew that. Then they said to her, but none of your relatives has that name. That was common. You're supposed to name him after a relative of some kind to carry on the name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Now immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was set free and he was able to talk. Now here you've been silent for nine months, nine plus months. Then all of a sudden you can talk again. What would you say? You'd be like, whew, it's good to talk again. I don't know what I'd say. But I, he, what's interesting is he goes right from not being able to talk to talk and he praises God. It's the first thing he does. He's not angry with God. He's not bitter with God because he's been silent. He's not angry or bitter with Gabriel at this point. We're pressing the mute button. Okay, he's, he's praising God because he sees what God has done and what's about to become. Then fear came on all those who lived around them. Again, a very public event took place. And all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. It went out. Here's the story. Listen, you guys, this is what God's doing. It's amazing. And all who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. And when his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Now ultimately, redemption comes through Jesus Christ. That's when we're bought back. But John's the one that's going to go out and begin telling people about this Messiah that's coming to bring redemption. This is what he has to say. He has raised up a horn of salvation. Anybody have an idea of what that's talking about? Why would you have a horn of salvation? Kind of a, a different thought for us, right? Like, that, that sounds strange. Now, Mary said something similar. Horn of salvation. For them, when they would go into the temple, there would be an altar, and on the altar, on all four sides, would be a horn. And when they would go and they would give a sacrifice, they would go and they would touch that horn. They would grab that horn. And when that sacrifice was being offered, they were identifying themselves with that sacrifice. So that when that sacrifice was offered for their sins, they were saying, yes, I am dying alongside this sacrifice for my sins. That's why they talk about the horn of salvation so much. We need that. We need that horn of salvation, that sacrifice for our sins. He says here, very specifically, he has raised up a horn of salvation. That's not John he's talking about. He's actually talking about Jesus. 
Jesus becomes the one that when we identify with him, when we grab hold of Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he becomes the sacrifice for our sins. That's the idea in Scripture that he talks about here. So he becomes a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant. Things he spoke about in the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled now. The oath that he swore to our our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. He looks back and he goes, man, you can look at all the Old Testament prophecies and it points to this wonderful time when the Messiah is coming. Who's going to be that horn of salvation for us? Then he turns to his son, his child, John. I don't know if he was holding him. I don't know if Elizabeth was holding him or one of the other priests were holding him. But he turns to his son, child, or he's turned to his son, John. He says, John, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. Now, for 400 years in the, in the Bible, you've got a period of silence from Malachi till John where you don't have a recorded prophet. John breaks that silence. John becomes this prophet. He's a prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, to prepare his ways and to give his people knowledge so they will know what salvation is and where it comes from through the forgiveness of their sins. They will begin to look at themselves and see that they need someone to go and die upon the cross for themselves. John begins that process. Jesus carries it on, and it's not until after Jesus dies upon the cross that people begin to understand what salvation is really about. But John was the beginning of that. Verse 78, because of our God's merciful compassion. He didn't have to do this. But because he's merciful, he did. The dawn from on high will visit us. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. To shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death. To guide our feet in the way of peace. What we deserve is is death. What we deserve is to pay for our sins. But the Savior is coming to set us free from that. And John came to begin speaking and teaching that very message so that by the time Jesus would come, we'd begin to understand it even more. So just kind of recap. God had a prep plan, and it was very public. God had a prep plan, and it was there to turn hearts to people. And I think God had a prep plan, and it's an example for us when we consider what is our prep plan. Why? Well, that's a question I've had probably for, for many years. And I look at the story of John and Jesus and how it all came about. I'll ask this question, why? Or more specifically, why did God send John? Or to make it even more specific, why did God, why did God decide the world needed someone to prepare the way for Jesus? I mean, couldn't Jesus just show up? Begin his earthly ministry without John? Sure. Why not? But remember, the people were expecting a different type of Messiah. 
The people were expecting Jesus to come in and, and be the one to overtake Rome. And he was going to be born in a wealthy family, maybe a priestly family. And so John comes, and he's the one that's born in a priestly family. John fits more of, of what people expected than Jesus did. And so John comes onto the scene, and, and a little bit, he sounds a little crazy when he goes out in the desert, but he's always teaching people, repent, repent. The Messiah is near. The kingdom is near. And eventually the Messiah comes. Jesus comes. He's born of a virgin. People had shunned and kind of pushed her away and said, no, that can't be. He comes to John, who was out there baptizing people, and he says, John, will you baptize me? And John says, I don't want to baptize you. You need to baptize me. He says, no, I need to do this out of obedience. And John's like, well, okay, if you want to. And he does. But it seems a little weird because you're you're God. But he comes in humility, and Jesus comes and says, John, you need to pass it on to me now. You've taken the reins, and you've pointed people to the Messiah. Now the Messiah is here. Here I am. And John passes it on to him. And now the people are starting to put some pieces together. This is a little different than what they expected. And as time goes by, three years later, Jesus is then put on the cross, and that totally blew people out of the water. John had been beheaded by that point. And people are starting to think, wait a minute, the people that we thought were going to be the Messiah, they're dying. But if they had heard the story all along the way, they'd understand that they had to die. They had to die because we needed forgiveness of sins. Why did God decide the world needed someone to prepare the way? I, I don't know exactly, but I have some guesses. And probably the best one for me is that because of John, by the time Jesus started his ministry, people were waiting with great anticipation for the coming Messiah. Because he was out there and he was telling people about who Christ was, who this this Messiah would be, and how people would need to be forgiven for their sins, by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, people were waiting with great anticipation. A couple of ways we can apply this. One, I don't want to skip over this. One is through evangelism. Sometimes people will hear the gospel and then a couple years later hear it again couple years later, hear it again, and maybe three, four, five, 20 years down the road, they'll finally accept Christ as Lord and Savior. That's similar to what's happening here, where John comes and he presents the good news, turn, repent, turn away from your sin, and turn to the Messiah. Jesus comes again, turn, repent, turn your way to the Messiah. Then after Jesus dies upon the cross and rises from the dead, the apostles are going out there speaking the same thing, and people are coming to Christ. Evangelism happens like that at times. Multiple people, multiple times when the gospel is passed on. But we're talking about worship. And I think there's an application here that we can apply to corporate worship. How do we prepare ourselves to come here to worship the one true God and King? If God is a God of order and God is a God of preparation, then we ought to be asking ourselves, how can we better prepare ourselves when we come into the doors to worship together, right? I think it makes some sense. You may be going, I don't know, that's a stretch. And if it's a stretch, it's okay. But I think this, this statement's still okay. A prepared worshiper experiences better worship. If God deemed it, I don't know, necessary, but if God deemed it possible or he wanted it or he sought to have John come before Jesus as a preparation, then I think we should ask ourselves the question, how can we prepare ourselves to come before Jesus 
to worship him. So a couple of thoughts as we look into some application. Uh, back in 96 is when I first stepped into ministry and started uh, working with youth. And it wasn't long before I was asked to start leading, leading worship. Now, in 96, it was a little bit different, a little different than what we've got set up here. You know, there's a piano and an organ, and I would usually would have a hymnal, and we'd be leading from, from that. And uh, that was about it. That was pretty much what we had for a worship team at that point. One of the things I learned very quickly, one of the most difficult pieces with leading in worship is getting people engaged. And oftentimes that's because people, I think, just go through the motions of, yeah, I'm just going to show up to church, we're going to open up the hymnal, and then we're going to start to sing through that, then the pastor will get up there, he'll open the Bible, we'll talk through that, and then we'll go on our way, and we'll kind of feel good about ourselves that we went to church, but we didn't really connect. How do we connect with God? And if we're just walking through the doors on a Sunday morning thinking at that point, boy, at this point I'd like to start connecting with God, I think we've blown it. I think we need to start before we walk through those doors. We need to start asking ourselves, how can we step in and begin worshiping God even before we show up on a Sunday morning? I wish I would have talked a lot more about preparation before I figured that out several years later. That it takes more time than just on Sunday morning. Today, it's even more difficult. And here's why. Back then, you can go back, you know, 96. I mean, let's face it. You and I, if we had a cell phone, it was one of those brick phones with the antenna that pulls out on top, right? We were just talking about that with my kids the other day. Like, Dad, what was your first phone? Was it one of those ones that had the antenna pulling? And they're laughing at me. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it was. (laughs) We could disconnect, though. When people left their homes, they usually disconnected from the world. Now, maybe it took a little longer, but, but you would disconnect from the world when you left from your home. Today, you're lucky if you disconnect when you walk through the back door. Because oftentimes, you have the world with you wherever you go. You sit in a chair here. Yeah, you might have your Bible open on your phone, and you're saying, yeah, I've, I've got it here. And Oh, oh well, there's a notification. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be back in the Word, right? And we don't disconnect. How can we worship an almighty God we can't disconnect from our world. We need to prepare our hearts to come before this almighty, awesome, powerful God who gave himself up for us. And if we can't even give him two hours of our attention, shame on us. He gave us his whole life. So it's hard to engage people. And I I want to encourage you and challenge you, if you want to have a better experience worshiping God, knowing who God is, coming before him and being challenged by him and leaving this place closer to God, I want to beg you, ask you, implore, I guess, to say, will you consider preparing yourself for worship before you come on a Sunday morning? There's a couple different ways you could do it. Here's a book. It's by Kent Hughes. It's called Disciplines of a Godly Man. There's also one. If you're like, well, what about us, ladies? There's The Disciplines of a Godly Woman out there, written by his wife. Um, and I think there's one on marriage, too. But here's what he has to say. I have, if I have learned anything in leading worship after 25 years in the ministry, I have learned that worship does not just happen. 
Worship requires careful preparation on the part of ministers and congregations. I have experienced both sides of this, and I know Sunday morning can be the worst time of the week. It is probably true that couples, especially those with young children, have more fights on Sunday morning than any other day of the week. Sometimes by the time we get to church, worship is an impossibility, unless perhaps the sermon is on repentance. Now, here's some things, some suggestions he gives. And you may be like, those are crazy. But just think through how you might be able to prepare and come up with some real, um, real application here. It says, the answer to the problem begins with Saturday preparation. Now, any men who interpret the following as women's work are wrong. Both husband and wife should share the responsibility for the practical and spiritual prepare, uh, preparations for the Lord's day. It is advisable that young families have their clothing cleaned and laid out on Saturday night, and even that breakfast be decided upon. The whereabouts of the Bibles and lessons should be known, and even better, ought to be collected and ready. There should be an agreed-upon time to get up, which leaves plenty of time to get ready for church. Going to bed at a reasonable hour is also a good idea. Spiritually, prayer about the Lord's day is essential. Prayer for the service, the music, the pastors, one's family, and oneself. On Sunday, everyone needs to get up on time, eat at a set hour, and leave plenty early, ideally after a short time of family prayer, asking that God will be glorified and speak to each family member. If you do this, Sunday worship will ascend to new heights. A couple of suggestions, but maybe you can go through your own life and you know what your life's like between Saturday night and Sunday morning. What could you do to prepare Can you spend some time on Saturday night preparing, reading some scripture, being with your family? On Sunday morning as you're going to church, can there be somebody there who's reading the scriptures? Or you're tuned into a radio station that maybe is playing some worship music. What can you do to help yourself prepare? Is it being that organized so that in the morning you don't have to think to yourself, what am I going to wear to church this morning? You've already decided that the night before. Those types of things keep you focused on what we're trying to be focused on which is Jesus Christ. A prepared worshiper experiences better worship. So the challenge. What were you hoping would happen when you came to church or corporate worship today? This is more of a reflective question. You may be saying, didn't really think much about it. That's probably the common answer. So the challenge for me is, I probably ought to think about it. I should be asking that question. Do I hope that I'm going to have a time with God where he's going to teach me something, where I'm going to cause, you know, have a time of reflection on my own life, where he's going to challenge me to dig in more to him? And Am I going to have a time with other believers where I can encourage another person, pray with another person at church, be an encouragement to them? What am I hoping would happen when I come? Hopefully it would start preparing us as we think about what we can do when we come to church. And then this question, what is the one thing you can change in your schedule to help you be more prepared for worship on Sunday morning? Now this is one. We have response cards. If you'd like to, you can respond on those. I would pray for this. I love doing that. We've gotten some in the past. It's awesome to be able to open it up and say, wow, okay, I can pray specifically for that need that that person has. If you want to, you can, you can uh, write it in. Someone said, we don't always have pens, Pastor Ryan. What can we do? 
text it to me right now. I think we're going to try to come up with a way where we can submit it digitally as well. You can text me that. Say, here's what I think I can do next week to help me prepare for worship. And I'll pray for that. We'll have our elders pray for that. So that we can be better prepared to come on a Sunday morning to worship our great God and King. So think about those things, reflect on them. We'll have that up here for a couple minutes while you're thinking about those, and then we'll close with a song.